Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to feel anew just how good you've been and how faithful you are, how reliable you are. Lord, help us to know through this text this morning your steadfast love. Make us so confident in us in it that we call upon you in our time of need. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I've mentioned before how our family, as we, as we prepare for Sunday morning together, we will read the sermon text uh, at night during FAMDEVs, our abbreviation of family devotions, and uh, we'll read the sermon text together uh, every night leading up to the Sunday when I'm going to preach it. And as you, as you read uh, a passage like this, even before I start uh, studying it to, to preach, uh, you start noticing things, and so I drew, uh, drew the kids' attention to some of the repetitions in the, in the psalm, and, and so one night I said, um, as I read through this tonight, I want you to notice uh, repeated words and repeated phrases, and I'm not a very subtle person, um, so we would come, let's say, to verse 4, and I would draw attention to the word some, and then we'd come again uh, to verse 10, some. And then again in verse 11, some. You see how this is being repeated. Verse 23, some. And then as you, as you get into the, the body of these sections, look at verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 13, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 19, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 28, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And you've got another uh, set of refrains. Verse 8, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. That's repeated in verse uh, 15, then in verse 21, then again in verse 31. And so anyway, we, you know, we do this that night, and I draw attention to these repetitions. And then the next night, I asked one of my sons, I will not divulge his name, I asked him to read the passage, and what do you think he did? He imitated me, you know? Every time we come to the word some, he's like, some? Hmm? 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 <laughs> Drawing everybody's attention to these repetitions. Lots of fun. Uh, as we approach Psalm 107, let me ask you this question. Have you ever studied love? And to put it more particularly, have you ever studied God's steadfast love, God's loyal, loving kindness. Is this the kind of thing you can study? Have you ever given it thought and said, exactly what is this, God's steadfast love? Look at the first um, statement of Psalm 107, O give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Look at the last words of verse 43, the last words of this psalm. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things, let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I think what we've got in this psalm is an account of God's steadfast love. God's steadfast love at the beginning, steadfast love at the end. What exactly is that? Well, here it is in the body of this psalm. Before we, we get into the psalm, let me, let me take a step back and, and sort of bring us up to this point in the Psalter. 
You'll notice right above Psalm 107 in your Bible, you find the words book five. And um, so, so this, the Psalter is divided into these five books, and we've seen how the, psalm, the Psalms open with Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1 describes this blessed man who meditates on the Torah. Psalm 2 presents the, the nations raging against the Lord's anointed. And then in Psalms 3 through 41 or so, the, the first book of the psalm, Psalms, um, there, David is in all this difficulty. And then as we start book 2, Psalms 42 through 72, there's a change in speaker. We go from being uh, Davidic psalms to now these being the psalms of the sons of Korah. And, and it's almost like it takes us into the period of David's reign because uh, David appointed the sons of Korah over the worship at the house of God after the ark rested there. And so it's almost like we, we move through the period of difficulty when Saul was trying to kill David into his reign. Then you get to Psalm 51, his sin with Bathsheba. Then you get to Psalm 72, which is a psalm about Solomon, a prayer for Solomon. And then you get into the, the descendants of David and the threats to the temple. And finally, Psalm 89, the temple looks destroyed. And then there's this intercession from Moses in Psalm 90 and, and all these uh, book four uh, prayers that look like uh, the people have been exiled. Look at Psalm 106, verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. Back in the Pentateuch, Moses had warned Israel that if they broke the covenant, the Lord would scatter them among the nations. They exile from the land, scatter them among the nations. And now the psalmist is saying, we've been exiled, we've suffered the curses of the covenant, gather us from among the nations. Now look at Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Verse 2, let the redeemed, redeemed, those are those who have been saved, and that word redeemed is significant because that's the word used to talk about the exodus from Egypt. God redeemed Israel from Egypt when, when they offered the Passover lamb. He redeemed them through the death of that Passover lamb. And now it's like a new exodus has happened. A new Passover lamb has happened. And, and we know that in the New Testament, Jesus is the Passover lamb. So it's like the psalmist is looking forward to that future salvation of God. And then look at, what he, look what he goes on to say. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. You see, you see the end of 106, 47, gather us. 107, give thanks. He's redeemed us. He's gathered us. So this psalm, Psalm 107, I, I would suggest, is written from the perspective of those who have enjoyed God's climactic redemption. And we know what that is, right? That's Christ's death on the cross. So what's going on in this psalm? Well, I think the, psalm, the psalmist, whoever he is, unnamed psalmist, is looking forward to God's future salvation. And it's like he's saying, what are things going to be right when God, what, what are things going to be like when God has finally saved his people? Let me write this psalm from that perspective. We've seen this kind of thing in the Old Testament before. Back in Exodus chapter 15, they get out of Egypt, they come through the Red Sea in Exodus 14, and they, as they're singing the triumph, uh, the triumph song uh, of Moses in Exodus 15, verse 13 reads, you have led in your steadfast love, there's that term again, 
the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. It's like you've already given us the land of Canaan. You've already brought us into the land of... Well, wait a minute. You just got out of Egypt. You haven't even moved through the wilderness yet. You're not in the land yet, but they're talking like it's already happened. You get the same thing in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, Isaiah's been warning the people, we're going to be exiled, we're going to be exiled, we're going to be exiled. And then you get to chapter 40 and he says, comfort, comfort my people. It's like the exile's over. So this kind of thing happens across the Bible and, and this is what we've got in Psalm 107. We've got a psalm that is looking forward to the climactic redemption of God that God is going to accomplish for his people and then and then describing reality in light of it. That being the case, I've got a question for you. To whom is this psalm addressed? And this is a question like Paul, like Paul asks of the Old Testament when he says in 1 Corinthians 9, did, did God write this for oxen? You know, he's just made this, just quoted it. And he says, no, well, it was not written for oxen. Was it not certainly written for us? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, right? Give thanks to the Lord for This psalm is addressed to us. We're the redeemed of the Lord. The redemption that God accomplished is the redemption in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this psalmist, it's like 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you as they searched and inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This psalm is written for us, and the New Testament is telling us that the Bible, the Old Testament, was written for us in these ways. Um, let, me, let me note also, back in Psalm 106, verse 47, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks Look at verse 1 of Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks. Okay? It's like the salvation has happened. Save us so we can give thanks. Okay, here's the command. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed, verse 2, of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Uh, the plea at the end of Psalm 106 is finding its answer here in, in the opening lines of Psalm 107. And so what's happening is this impressionistic storyline of the Psalter is, is now being moved forward to this climactic moment when God will save his people and bring them home. Uh, in verses 4 through 9, what we're going to see in these, in these verses, in, in the next four sections really, and, and you've got an outline um, in, your, in your bulletin uh, if you want to look at that. The next four sections of this psalm are going to follow a, a, a similar pattern. Uh, the first thing that, that we're going to find is a description of the people's need. And then from there, we're going to be told that they cried out to the Lord. And then we're going to be told how the Lord delivered them. And then those who are delivered are going to be commanded to praise God. The need in verses 4 through 9 is we've got people who are hungry and they're lost and they have no home. So we've got hungry people who are homeless and they don't know how to get home. And what the Lord is going to do is he's going to give them clear direction 
and he's going to provide for them, and he's going to give them a city. Look at verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. I, I, I doubt that anyone in this room has experienced this kind of circumstance, where you, you're, you're wandering around in a desert, you don't have a clear path, you don't know exactly where you're supposed to be going, you don't have a city to dwell in, and you don't have a land to work, and as a result, you don't have a crop to harvest. So you're hungry and you're lost. I, I doubt any of us have, have been in that kind of situation, but I think perhaps uh, this kind of situation is, being, uh, is, is, is alluding to the experience of the, the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, having said I doubt any of us have, have been out in the desert wandering, or wandering around, I know that there are people in this room uh, who have been in situations where they don't have a place to live. And I know that there are people in this room who have been in situations where they don't have enough food to eat. So I think we can, we can identify with, with go, what's going on in this, in this psalm. And what we're given in verse 5 is a further description of these folks. We read in verse 5 that they were hungry and thirsty. Hungry and thirsty. And then we read that their soul within them fainted. What's that talking about? That's talking about these people becoming so discouraged that rather than having a positive attitude and their, their spirit within them being strong and resilient, they just give way. It's like they collapse. And I know that there are members of this congregation that have been in that kind of situation, so discouraged by circumstances, so down about what's going on that you have no more strength to resist the onslaught of life. What the psalmist tells us about these people next models for us the right response to, to these kinds of circumstances. Look at verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. The faithful of the past, when they were hungry, homeless, discouraged, without direction. Verse 6, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. I want to ask you a question and just invite you to reflect on it. Are you crying out to God in your moment of need? Whether that moment of need is temptation, whether that moment of need is difficulty with coworkers, whether that moment of need is... Uh, uh, you don't know where you, how your bills are going to be paid. Uh, I, I don't know what your moment of need is in particular, but my question for you is, are you crying out to the Lord in the moment of need? When, when you feel like you've had it with the people around you, you, you can't give any more, you're sick of this, are you crying out to the Lord in your moment of need? They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Um, if you don't cry out to the Lord in your moment of need, you will not experience His deliverance from your distress. You have to cry out. Yes, He's sovereign. Yes, He knows what's going on. But if you don't cry, He's not going to deliver. The Lord hears the prayers of His people. So this is me pleading with you, urging you, exhorting you to try to form a habit of mind. When I get in, in straits, when I get in difficulty... 
When I get in distress, my reaction needs to be, I'm going to cry out to the Lord in my distress. He will deliver. Look at verse 7. The way the Lord delivers matches the need. Verse 7, He led them by a straight way. Back in verse 4, they're wandering around in the desert. They cry out to the Lord. This is His steadfast love. Here's the straight way. Here's the path forward. Till they reached, look back at verse 4, finding no way to a city to dwell in, they cry out to the Lord. Verse 7, He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. The Lord answers in accordance with the need. Now, I'm going to skip over verse 8. We'll come back to that in just a second. Look at verse 9. There's, there's an explanation given for the command in verse 8. Verse 9, for he satisfies the longing soul. That phrase, longing soul, you could render that a little bit more literally as a rushing soul. And the word there that's translated rushing is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe a charging bear, leaping locusts, and a rushing chariot. So what is a rushing soul or a longing soul? Well, it's not a soul that is content, at rest, and peaceful, is it? It's a soul that is nonstop. I've got to go. I'm charging. I'm, I'm rushing. I'm leaping like a locust that just never stops. Look at the verse again, verse 8. He satisfies the longing soul. Are you experiencing God's satisfaction that he has for your soul? You won't experience it if you don't cry out to him. You will not experience God satisfying your soul if you don't cry out to him. But he's able to do it. He's able and willing and ready to do it. He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul. He fills with good things. Now let's just tally this up. These people are lost. They got nowhere to live. They're hungry and their souls are discouraged. What does the Lord give them? Verse 7, he gives them a straight way to a city to dwell in. He fills the hungry with good things and he satisfies the rushing soul. And then look at verse 8. Here's the reason for this. All, all the, everything that we just accounted, thus, verse 8, let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Do you see what steadfast love is? God's steadfast love is His readiness to meet His people's needs. His ability to meet His people's needs. God is not a father who is sitting up there saying, those children better not come to me. I've had it with them. They've wandered too far this time. They've gone, I'm sick of them. I'm, I'm not helping them another time. I'm done. I'm washing my hands. No. The Lord is up there saying, it's like Jesus at Jerusalem. How often I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. Just return to me. Come to me. This is the Lord's steadfast love. This this phrase in, at the beginning of verse 8, let them thank the Lord. You know what? You could do this another way. It's a command. You could say, they must thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. They must do it. Do you have a heart of gratitude? Do you feel grateful to the Lord? We'll get to a later part of the psalm where this 
this problem that we have, our, our ingratitude will be addressed. First, we got verses 10 through 16. Uh, verses 4 through 9, the, the hungry and the lost get direction and provision. We're going to have the same pattern here in verses 10 through 16. And here, the imprisoned and rebellious are humbled and freed. And, and this, this following the same pattern, it's like the psalmist is taking a hammer on the nails of our thick skulls and just driving the point home, trying to make the point for us. Look at verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. How did that happen to them? I thought these were God's people. I thought that, that God was able to free and, and provide for his people. Well, look, at, look at verse 11. This is how God's people get in that kind of situation, the shadow of death and affliction and irons. Verse 11, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. I think we've got an allusion here to Psalm 1 in the word counsel and in the reference to the words of God. Because in Psalm 1, you've got this blessed man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked and his heart delights in the Torah, the Word of God, right? And you've got the opposite here. They're rebelling against the words of God and spurning the counsel of the Most High. Why would somebody do this? Why would somebody spurn the counsel of the Most High? I think the answer is ready to hand, don't you? Pride. We think we know better than the Bible. God says, don't do that. That's going to make you miserable. And we say, oh, no, it won't. That's going to make me happy. That's what I need. That's what I want. We think we know better than the Bible. And, and sometimes it just boils down to unbelief. God says, don't do that. It'll make you miserable. And we say to him, in essence, I don't believe you. I don't think that's going to make me miserable. They rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Look back at verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Winston Churchill had this great phrase. He referred to the sunlit uplands of hope. Rather than the sunlit uplands of hope, these people live in darkness and the shadow of death. You want the sunlit uplands of hope? There's a path to that. It's not the path of rebelling against the words of God and spurning his counsel. It's the other way. So, so they had darkness rather than light. They had the shadow of death rather than the sunlit uplands of hope. And they had affliction and iron. You see that in verse 10? Rather than blessing and freedom. One way or another, God will humble those who think they are wiser than he is. And so look at the way the psalmist describes this in verse 12. He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. The Lord is able to humble those who walk in pride. The Lord resists the proud. And, and God, God is being described here bowing the hearts of his people down with hard labor, labor. Then in verse 12, in the middle, they fell down with none to help. All of a sudden they realize, I can't overcome him. His ways are right. And there is nobody else that can deliver me from the consequences that I've gotten myself into. And so once again, they model they model the right response in verse 13. But note what's happened here. Their place of need brought them to a place of wisdom. 
It is wise to cry out to the Lord. And the place of need, darkness, shadow of death, affliction, irons. I wonder if you feel like your life is like that sometimes. That place of need can bring you to the place of wisdom. Verse 13, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And then just as we saw in verses 4 through 9, the deliverance is going to match the problems. Look at verse 14. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. We had an allusion to Psalm 1 in their spurning of the counsel of the Most High, rebelling against the words of God in verse 11. Do you remember where in the Bible, where in the Psalms, we've had this phrase, burst their bonds apart? That's Psalm 2, right? The wicked, they're gathered against the Lord, and, and, they're, and they're saying, let us burst his bonds apart and tear these fetters from us. That's what the wicked are saying. And the ironic thing is, it's like the psalmist is showing the truth of Proverbs 5, verse 22. Proverbs 5, 22 says this, the iniquity of the wicked, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. So it's like the wicked say, God's got these, these bonds that I'm going to tear off me, these commandments. I'm going to have nothing to do with his rule in my life. And the Bible is saying, when you do that, really what you're doing is you're enslaving yourself. You're getting yourself all tied up in all of these encumbrances, all of these chains, all of these snares. And look again at verse 14. God is the one who can burst those bonds. You got yourself into this mess, but you can't get yourself out of it. You are not strong enough to get yourself out of your sin. You are not strong enough to overcome all of God's righteous indignation and wrath against your sin. You are not strong enough to overcome the chains that hold you in your sin. The only way you're going to get free from those things is if God bursts those bonds apart. So you got to do 13, verse 13 there. You've got to cry out to the Lord in your trouble and experience His deliverance from your distress. He, he brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Look at verse 16. For he shatters the doors of bronze. In, in that world, uh, bronze was stronger than stone, stronger than wood. The strongest door cannot withstand the Lord. He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. No chain can hold those whom God desires to liberate. There will be no restraint that can keep God from accomplishing His purpose in your life. There's great reason for hope here, isn't there? As you look at your life, are there, are there patterns of sin? Are there attitudes that you've dealt with all your life? Are there... Um, things that you, you feel like, I wish I could finally overcome this. Look again at verse 16. He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Verse 14 at the end, he burst their bonds apart. So here's verse 15. They must thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Here again, this is steadfast love. He's going to meet needs. He's going he's to liberate captives. And he's going to humble the rebellious. This is God's steadfast love. They must thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. That brings us to verses 17 
through 22. And you can see, if you're looking at the bulletin, uh, you can see that I, I've sort of given you a chiastic um, outline of this psalm. And um, I'm inclined to think that um, uh, this part, verses 17 through 22, this stands at the very center of the psalm. So, verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways. Uh, what sin does is it makes us stupid. Sin makes us fools. And, and all you have to do is, is watch the accounts of people that get, that get caught in their sin. I mean, just this week, there was a story of a head, head football coach, very famous person. And this is what that guy decided to do. His, his football program was um, facing NCAA um, penalties, and he knew that he had broken the rules. But he went to reporters, and he said, look, this is what we're going to tell people. He told the reporters what he was going to do. We're going to tell people that all the infractions against the rules were done by the previous head coach. And the reporters went along with it. He's just outright lying about the previous head coach. What do you think the previous head coach is going to do? He sues for defamation of character and libel, slander, right? Well, guess what that brings out? That brings out that this head coach has been uh, making phone calls to inappropriate people. And that results in the immediate termination of that coach's tenure at this institution. Sin makes us stupid. It's stupid to break the rules. Then it's stupid to try to pass it off on somebody else and not realize they're probably going to come after me if I do that. And that's probably going to expose other dumb things that I've done that I shouldn't have done. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. Uh, sin will make us stupid and it will land us in affliction. And then look at verse 18. They loathed any kind of food. Do you know what else sin does to us? Sin makes us dissatisfied with what we have. Sin makes us stupid and it makes us dissatisfied. It makes us ungrateful. And, and here again, I think the psalmist is probably thinking of the children of Israel out in the wilderness. Uh, here's manna from heaven. All we have to eat is this manna. They loathe any kind of food. Um, you, I'm sure you've experienced this in, in your own life. There's a proverb that says this. To the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet, but he who is full loathes honey. To the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. So, so these people, they're ungrateful. They're foolish because of their sin. And then look at the middle of verse 18. They drew near to the gates of death. They are on the path that leads straight to destruction. But once again, once again, verse 19. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Do you... Do you we should all look at our lives. I'm not even going to phrase it as a do you question because it applies to me too. We should look at our lives and recognize the way that we're fools. And we are all, we are all in that category one way or another. We are all fools. We are stupid. We do dumb things. We say awful things to people. Not, as though we don't know this is going to be hurtful to them. We should look at our lives and we should say, I'm a fool. And then we should look at our lives and we should say, how ungrateful I am. I loathe God's provision for me. 
And then we should turn. We should do verse 19 and cry to the Lord in our trouble. And look what the Lord does for them. Look at verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them. He sent out his word and healed them. This is one of the many places in the Bible where the Bible says of itself, the Bible is what fixes you. He sent out his word and healed them. You want to get your mind right? You want to get your heart right? You need to receive what the Lord has sent out, which is his word. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Look at verse 22. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. If you want a grateful heart, what you need is more Bible in your life. The Bible will train your heart to be grateful and it will heal you. And now having said that, there's also, I think, remarkable correspondence between what's going on in this psalm and some things that we read in the New Testament. And I think this is on purpose. I think that the New Testament authors do this on purpose. And I'm inclined to think that they also are aware of the first few verses of this psalm. You know, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed and gathered in from the lands. In other words, I think that the authors of the New Testament are alluding to Psalm 107, knowing of its strategic importance. And it's like they're saying, look, this is the redemption that Psalm 107 was talking about. So... In light of that verse we just read there in verse 20, he sent out his word and healed them. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then you fast forward a few verses, and the word became flesh. And he's all over the place saying things like, he who sent me, right? And then you think of Matthew 8. Remember this story? Peter's mother-in-law was sick. Let me just, let me just insert here um, uh, just the last few mornings as I'm, as I'm doing things around the house, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug again the free ESV app. So if, if you've got one of these, one of these smartphones, you can download the ESV Bible app for free, and then you can, you can touch anywhere in the Bible and hit this little speaker-looking icon and hit play, and it's like you've got your own personal servant walking around with you reading the Bible to you. It's remarkable. And as I was listening to, I listened to about Matthew 8 through 15 this morning as I was making coffee and walking the dog and doing various things. And it struck me. I was reminded of my, my friend Bill Kristen. Um, Bill um, grew up in New York City. I met him when he was living down in, in Texas. And he grew up in New York City. And he told me that um, he was 19 years old and somebody gave him a Bible. And he decided to just start reading the New Testament. And he said, halfway through John, I knew that I was a follower of Jesus. I believed. And, and as I was listening to Matthew 8 through 16, or 8 through 15 or so this morning, I was just thinking to myself, how could you not be convinced of Jesus? It is so convincing. It's so compelling. He is so attractive. He's, he's amazing. He's healing people. He's walking on water. He's providing for thousands. It's remarkable. But the the story I was talking about, Matthew 8, Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and Jesus heals her. And then you know what Matthew does? Matthew quotes Isaiah 53. He took our diseases and bore our iniquities. And I think what Matthew's doing is saying something like this. Because of what Jesus did on the cross... 
because of the way that he was crushed for our iniquities. He's able to heal. He's able to heal. God sent out his word and healed them. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you need Isaiah 53 applied to your life. That's a chapter about how uh, Jesus was crucified in our place. I mean, you know, that language is not used. I'm just telling you what it's about. Um, but it's a chapter about the, about the cross. It's a chapter about the way that Christ died in the place of his people. If, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you need that. You need Jesus to die for you. And then uh, wherever you are, we all need what, what Psalm 107 verse 20 is talking about, don't we? He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Here it is again in verse 21. They must thank the Lord for his steadfast love. It was God's steadfast love. We know this, don't we? John 3.16. This is the way that God loved the world. He sent his only begotten son. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Uh, so we've had um, the hungry and the lost. And then we had those uh, who... Uh, were rebellious and who were um, um, uh, imprisoned. And then we, here we have the, the sinful and the dissatisfied. This next little unit, verses 23 through 32, I think this is more about circumstances. This is, more, this is not directly as a result of sin. It's more about just the fact that the world is, is broken because of human sin. And, and sometimes our circumstances get us in situations where... Um, Things are beyond our control, and, and we're in a, in a bad situation. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. The waves, verse 26 there, mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. So you can envision these guys on the, on the uh, deck of this ship and they're staggering around as the waves rock and roll in, in all this fury. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. They didn't know what to do. Their wisdom was swallowed up as the footnote puts the Hebrew more literally. Then verse 28, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. So here, uh, these, these people are not, we're not told that these guys were sinners and that's why there was a storm at sea. So I, I think what we should think about this here is a situation where, you know, you find yourself on the highway and all of a sudden you're back boxed in and it looks like something really bad's about to happen. Or uh, everything all of a sudden starts to fall, fall apart around you at work. Or it feels like, it feels like your family feels like the wheels are falling off and it's beyond your control and you can't point to one thing in particular. We still need to do verse 28, don't we? They cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. And then, I mean, it's almost like the psalmist, long before Christ came, is talking about Jesus. We read about this in Mark 4. You read about it in Matthew 14. Read about it in John 6. Verse 29, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. It's, it's like, notice how it was God who did it both times. Look, look back at verse 25, he commanded and raised the stormy wind, 
And then he made the storm be... He speaks and the sea, sea just starts raging. And he speaks and it becomes a whisper. He made the storm, storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. This is why we read John 6. Because as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, all of a sudden they're at the shore where they're trying to get to. And here again... Here again they must thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. If Jesus can calm the sea, is there anything he can't do? Now that's the last of these uh, sections that are arranged this way. We've got two more sections in this psalm. Uh, in verses 33 through 38, there, there's a focus on the way that the Lord is going to transform the land and bless the people. Um, look at verse 33. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground. I would invite you to think of the Garden of Eden. God plants this garden in the east. And there are rivers that flow out of Eden to water the garden. Do you remember what happened after Adam, Adam, Adam sinned? Genesis 3.17, cursed is the land because of you. He turns rivers into a desert. Springs of water into a thirst. There was this pristine, perfect, lush creation. God curses it. And all of a sudden there are deserts and there are hurricanes and there are tempests on the seas and so forth. Verse 34, I think it sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah. This, this lush land that Lot chose, and then it's a smoking ruin, and his wife is a pillar of salt. Verse 34, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. And, and those things, the cursing of Eden, the breaking of the world, and, and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, those are like previews of what God did to the land of promise, right? The land of promise, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And what does God do? He makes it into a wasteland. But then look at verse 35. So he can reverse things in a bad direction. He can also reverse them in a good direction. Verse 35, he turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. There are at least two places in the prophets, Isaiah 51.3 and Ezekiel 36.35, where the prophet says that the land of Israel, which has become a wasteland under God's curse, is going to be like the Garden of Eden. And, and I think that's the way the psalmist is talking here. He, he turns a desert into pools of water, parched land into springs of water, and there, verse 36, he lets the hungry dwell. This is like Back in verse 5, they were hungry, and, and now in verse 36, there he lets the hungry dwell in the land of promise, and they establish a city to dwell in. It's the exact same phrase from verse 4. They found no way to a city to dwell in. But now in verse 36, he renews the face of the land, and he brings the hungry in, and he gives them a city to dwell in, where they sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. And then uh, verse 38 sounds like Genesis 128, doesn't it? 
God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Verse 38, by his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. God blesses, God gives joy. This last section, verses 39 through 43, calls the wise to attend and consider these things. Verse 39, when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow. And here I think, I think the psalmist has in mind things like Israel going down into Egypt and being oppressed. Israel being exiled to Babylon and being oppressed. When this happens, verse 40, he pours contempt on princes. I think we should think of Pharaoh. We should think of the king of Babylon, the Persian king, all those guys. They're humbled and, and God's people are, are brought out. Verse 40, he pours contempt on princes and makes them, these foreign powers, wander in trackless wastes. He doesn't give them the straight way in which to walk that we read about uh, back in verse 7. He led them by a straight way. But he would if they would repent, right? If they would repent and turn to him and do what verse 6 and verse 13 and verse 19 and verse 28 talk about, cry to the Lord in their trouble, he would deliver them too. Verse 41, but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. Uh, two texts that I would invite you to think about and just, just say to yourself, hey, does, is this what this is talking about? Remember Genesis 12, 3? All the families of the earth will be blessed in you. And that, that's one. He makes the families like a flock. The other text, uh, or like flocks, John 10, 16. You remember what Jesus says there? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must gather them also. The families of the earth, Jesus gathers them. God raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it. God's people, they see all this and they rejoice. The upright see it and are glad. And the people that hate God, they've got nothing to say. There is nothing they can say. They have no response. They cannot gainsay what God has done. All wickedness at the end of verse 42 shuts its mouth. And then the psalmist gives you an application. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. You know what the psalmist is saying? Pay attention. That's your application. Pay attention to this. And then here's another application at the end of verse 43. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalmist wants you to meditate on these things. The psalmist wants you to think hard on these expressions of God's steadfast love. Gregory of Nyssa, this early Christian father of the church, he's one of the three Cappadocian fathers, he wrote of Psalm 107 that it contains a complete consummation and recapitulation of human salvation. I think that's right. God redeems his people through this climactic salvation that Jesus accomplished. And God is now at work gathering the scattered exiles, both of the, the 
lost sheep of the house of Israel and the other sheep that Jesus has. And we can join him in that work as we call people to faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 6, the one who comes to me will never hunger. The one who, who trusts in me will never thirst. God gives the hungry food. God gives the rushing soul, verse 9, satisfaction. God gives the homeless a place to dwell. He gives the lost away. The Lord breaks the captives out of prison. No bond can hold those whom he means to liberate. The Lord's word heals sinners and makes them thankful. The Lord's word calms the sea and he delivers those in the boat to shore. God cursed the land. He broke the world. But God's blessing will revoke that curse. Do you know where you're going? Do you know what your city of destination, your city of dwelling is if you're a believer in Jesus? It's the new Jerusalem. Do you know how to get there? The straight way is laid out for us here in the scriptures. God will give the redeemed the new land. And the upright will be glad. The unjust will be silenced. And the wise will be wiser still from their study of God's love. Father, we pray that you would cause us to experience ever more deeply your love. And we pray that you'd help us to heed this psalmist, both in what he commands us to do, in thanking you for your steadfast love, for your wondrous works, and in attending to these things and considering your steadfast love and also in the example that he gives us from the faithful of old. Lord, help make us those who in our distress call on you. Whether the distress comes from our sin, from our physical need, or from circumstances that are beyond our control, make us those who instinctually cry out to you in Christ's name. Amen.